On this week's Behind the Idea, Mike speaks with Madhu Unakrishnan of Skift Airline Weekly about the Boeing 737 MAX issues we discussed last week. Madhu brings perspective from decades following the industry, and one point he makes is that customers may not be totally plugged into the issues of a given plane model. Most people don't know what kind of aircraft they're flying when they board, book a flight or board a flight. And once this fades from the headlines and the 787, uh, 737-8 and the MAX family is recertified to fly, people will forget. He also reminds that 737 MAX is just one model and not as big a seller as the market may have been rating it. You know, you also have to remember that there aren't that many MAXs in service. I believe it's around 300 the largest MAX operator in the States is Southwest with about a little more than 20. And that, you know, it's 5% of Southwest fleet. So right now, the exposure isn't very great. News continues to develop in this story, but it seems the buy the dip angle is playing out. Does that match with what our industry insider sees? Listen in. I'm behind the idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Mike Taylor, and with me today is Madhu Unikrishnan, editor of Skift Airline Weekly, a publication that focuses intently on the airline industry. We're following up on our coverage of Boeing, ticker symbol BA, and what recent crashes of its 737 MAX airplanes mean for the company. Before we get started, a quick disclaimer, Behind the Idea is the podcast that looks around the Seeking Alpha ecosystem for what makes great investment analysis work. Neither Madhu nor I have any positions in any companies discussed, and nothing on this podcast should ever be taken as investment advice of any sort. With that, welcome, Madhu. Hi, it's nice to be here. Nice to have you. So... I just want to kind of jump in to catch up on the news a little bit since our last podcast. So on Sunday, the New York Times ran an article that kind of gave a bit of a background story on how the 737 MAX came into existence. And it mentioned the kind of more rushed time, time frame for development of the airplane and also perhaps a, a new reaction from Boeing which historically had maybe underestimated Airbus as a rival and then a kind of quick scramble to catch up with Air, Airbus. So from your perspective, covering the industry for so many years, how does that story sort of connect with your view of Boeing and your view of the industry dynamics over a longer time period? Well, that's a good question. You know, the, the New York Times article did address one of the more interesting developments in this industry over the last couple of decades, and that's the development of the MAX, Boeing's re-engine 737. Airbus sort of forced Boeing's hand in the last decade when it, when it announced the A321neo, or sorry, A320neo family, the re-engined narrow-body aircraft that Boeing's, or Airbus's answer to Boeing's 737 workhorse. So Boeing, as the New York Times reported, quickly scrapped plans for a for developing a whole new aircraft in the narrow body space, a, pro, a project that would have taken you know, 10, 15 years, and instead re-engined the existing airframe of, uh, of the 737 with more efficient engines. And, you know, that, that required an enormous amount of technological development on Boeing's part. So 
Although I agree with the New York Times article that this was a very, you know, unique and interesting development in, in aerospace, I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that Boeing rushed the development of the aircraft. I mean, this aircraft was in, the MAX was in development for, for many years and it, you know, and a, an enormous amount of work and investment went into the development of the MAX and, and adapting the airframe for these new engines. Okay, so if we're trying to kind of wrap our head around this, the story of this development, you say a number of years, just give some concept for when a new, when a new aircraft goes into development, what's the kind of overall timetable there? And how does the process normally work versus some of the things we might have seen here? Or how, how normal do you think the manufacturing process was overall? Well, you know, the, the 737 MAX is an interesting case. Uh, unlike a clean sheet aircraft, a completely new aircraft design, um, such as when Boeing introduced the 787 Dreamliner in the last decade and Airbus developed the A380 Super Jumbo also in the last decade. The, those clean sheet designs, you know, started with, as a, as I just said, <laughs> a clean sheet of paper and, and, uh, and were completely new designs. And the, and the Airbus started developing the A380 in the, or started talking about the A380 at the end of the nineties and the aircraft went into service in the middle of the last decade. So, you know, roughly 10 years from the clean sheet of paper to, to first flight and to entry into service. A similar story was with Boeing's composite 787 Dreamliner. Uh, so the MAX, you know, it, it followed a similar timeline. It was a little bit shortened because the airframe already existed. So it's not that, you know, they weren't starting from clean sheet of paper. They were taking an existing aircraft and modifying it and changing some of some of its design characteristics to accommodate the new airline. So I don't think it's an, you can, we can say it's an atypical process. It was atypical and they're re-engineering an existing aircraft. But if we can pause for a second and go back, you know, the 737 was introduced in the, in the late sixties. And in that period, it hasn't been the same aircraft. It has been, you know, there, there, there have been technological advances to the fuselage and to the wings and to, to the engines over the years. So it's, you know, uh, the, some, some of the narrative I've seen out in the media is that Boeing just stapled these new engines onto an aircraft that's been around since the 60s. And while that <laughs> sort of in a broader picture is true, it isn't. <laughs> it, the aircraft has evolved significantly over the last four or five decades. So it is not as clear cut to say, you know, this is an anomalous narrative or this is a strange story at versus a clean sheet design. It's a, it, it did, it was a matter of years that this was, this project was in development. Got it. Okay. So maybe there's some, I don't know, the clean sheet versus the modification of an existing design. It sounds like there's precedent to do either one. Maybe there's benefit to doing a clean sheet design versus a kind of iteration like this, but maybe it's, maybe both processes work fine. Do you, do you think it matters whether there was this aspect of kind of 
trying to match an existing model with the new engine, do you think that that might have caused particular problems here? Or do you think that this is just sort of, maybe we're just seeing some bad outcomes from what's probably a fine process? I think that's what I'm trying to get the connection between the outcomes and the process and see whether those are separate or whether those are sort of integrated together. No, I think that's exactly right. I think you hit the nail on the head. We're seeing an unfortunate outcome from if a process that works and has worked in the past. And I can, you know, an example would be the 747, the, the iconic jumbo jet that Boeing launched in the late sixties and is still in, a variant of which is still in production today, the 747-8. Once again, the Boeing didn't, hasn't been selling the same aircraft since the 1960s and looks kind of the same to the layman, but but it's got new wings, it's got new engines, it's had several iterations of engines and wings and development. So, you know, this is not, it's not unusual, it's not unheard of in this industry for for an airframe to be adapted and for it to evolve over the years. And that's what we saw with the MAX. It was yet another sort of version of the same story of an airframe or an existing product being developed and modernized for the new reality is of the aviation industry and as new technology comes online. The two accidents, and, you know, let me let me preface what I'm going to say next by we simply don't know what caused both accidents. We, the authorities have made good guesses, but until the data are fully decoded from both sets of black boxes or cockpit voice and cockpit data recorders, we don't know exactly what caused either crash. They have a, they, they, they've been, so with that caveat, let me say, you know, what these outcomes or these two tragedies are possible outcomes of a fine process. Okay. So what are the good guesses as to what, what did go wrong here? I read about uh, software seemed to be the focus of one article I read, but if it's really up in the air, maybe we can get some context around some of the different possibilities uh, so people have a, a sense of that. Sure. Um, you know, the, the, what does seem to have occurred is, is some kind of malfunction with the, uh, with the software that controls the, the way the aircraft flies in certain circumstances. And, you know, not to get too technical, but just, the engines on the 737 MAX generate a different char- lift characteristic from the other, uh, from existing 737s or previous versions of the 737. So the software was an attempt to correct that and to make the flying characteristics seem to the pilot like they were similar to the you know, prior versions of the 737. There, now, once again, I'm not, I really want to stress that we don't know, we won't know until the FAA, the NTSB, the various authorities around the world have taken their fact and data-based investigations to the end. We don't know exactly what caused these accidents, whether there was pilot error involved, whether there was some kind of mis, you know, whether there was a, a, a sort of disconnect between what the software was saying and how the pilots reacted. We just, we simply don't know, but we do seem to, it does seem to suggest the preliminary reports seem to suggest that there was a malfunction with this particular software that mimicked 
made the 737 Max feel like the pilot, feel to the pilot like earlier versions of the 737. Got it. Okay. I think one question that's sort of on everyone's mind from a, the investment perspective, a key question that you ask when you kind of have these tragedies and the stock is potentially impacted by these sort of singular events that are very attention grabbing is how, how common is this? How common is this to sort of come back this type of event, this type of accident? How common is it for it, for it to come back on the manufacturer of the aircraft? And is this something that's just going to happen every once in a while? And it's unfortunate that there were sort of two events close together or What's your sense overall? What's the sort of bigger picture perspective on crashes and uh, malfunctions with aircraft equipment? You know, that is, that is something we've been talking about in the office quite a lot. And just I've been talking about with people in the industry. I mean, here's a statistic uh, about 40,000 people a year die on the American roads on highway accidents and car accidents in the U.S. The number of people who lose their lives in aircraft accidents per year is probably fewer than a thousand globally. However, when an aircraft crashes, it's, it's very emotional. It, it, it gets, you know, days and days of headlines. People, it speaks to an already existing fear people have of flying. So it's, it's important to keep that perspective though, right? I mean, that this is still a very safe way to travel. Now, to answer your question, how does it affect the stock? I mean, we can look to history, right? I mean, the um, although no one was lost their lives in these incidents, 2013, the 787 Dreamliner had um, issues with its batteries and a couple of aircraft caught on fire and the entire fleet was grounded for a number of weeks worldwide. And um, Boeing stock was flat for a few weeks and then took off. I mean, and now, you know, there were a lot of reports at the time that, uh, you know, people saying they wouldn't fly. They were booking away from future 787 flights, et cetera. Of course, now it is one of the most popular air aircraft in the skies. Air airline, you know, the Boeing has an enormous backlog for 787s. And, you know, people moved on. Similarly, you know, even if you if you look further back, the DC in the late 70s, um, the FAA grounded the DC 10, McDonnell Douglas DC 10 fleet for a few weeks because of the design flaw that with the cargo doors that caused the Turkish Airlines accident and uh, I believe an American Airlines accident in the late 70s. About 600 people lost their lives in that. There was also, you know, the, the, at the time, if you look in the historical record, there was a lot of uh, concerned that the, this was an unsafe aircraft and should people book away from DC-10 flights. But once the public accepted the fact that the fixes had been made for both the, the DC-10 and, and more recently the 787, they moved on. So the, the effect on McDonald's, McDonald Douglas' stock then was also, you know, sharp in the short term, but the company recovered. Uh, in other words, the public moves on once once the public is assured that the aircraft is safe. And the third factor that people often forget is, you know, most people don't know what kind of aircraft they're flying when they board, book a flight or board a flight. And um, once this fades from the headlines and the 787, uh, 737-8 and the MAX family is recertified to fly, people will forget, you know, Boeing has a 
what, fi- uh, 5,000 aircraft backlog or something for the, the Max family and is continuing pr- production at the same pace even now. So I, I don't think the, the long-term effect on, on the company will be too great if the aircraft is recertified. <laughs> right. I guess that's the key question. So just to sort of help me understand, the, the FDA did make the decision, I think, to ground the planes. Was there anything sort of remarkable about that decision on the F, on, did I say FDA, FAA's part on the FAA's part? We cover a lot yeah. of drug companies here. So, <laughs> so yeah, no. um, so go ahead. <laughs> there, there was, and this is interesting. You know, I've been, I've been covering this industry for almost 20 years, and this is the first time I've seen the, what happened happen. The, um, the FAA grounded the fleet. And like I said, even recently we have an example of that when the FAA grounded the 787 fleet back in 2013. But why this this was remarkable was, you know, usually regulatory agencies around the world follow the FAA's lead when it's a U.S. manufactured plane. And so, you know, if it's uh, if it's their bus, they follow the EASA, the European Aviation Safety Authority's um, uh, lead on on whether to ground the aircraft or not. So this was a very unusual circumstance for those of us who are nerds about this industry in that, you know, the China came out first, and I, Ethiopia and China came out, were among the first to ground the fleet. And then there was this cascading series of countries that grounded the aircraft before, while the FAA was still saying, you know, the aircraft is safe, we see no reason to ground it. We're continuing, you know, we're, we're continuing our investigation. And until the investigation is complete, there's no need to ground it. But then the FAA, once Canada grounded the aircraft, the FAA followed suit. And, um, and it was, so that cascading series of groundings was unusual. But the second thing that was unusual to me was that, uh, FAA and and Transport Canada based their decision on satellite data they got from a company called Arion, uh, which had tracked the, the way the, uh, tracked the flight path of the Ethiopian aircraft. And this was the first time to my knowledge and to people I've spoken to that the FA has made such a decision based on third party data and not its own data that it's gotten from the, the black boxes. So that was a nerdy answer to your question. <laughs> yes, it was, it was very unusual. Huh. Well, it sounds from your previous comments, like uh, the, the planes can get grounded, but then once the public moves on, as long as the aircraft gets recertified, then potentially everything's fine. I do want to explore a little bit. What does it look like if Boeing fails to get the 737 MAX recertified? What's that? How does that scenario play out and what's the impact for the company? You know, that's, that is actually so far from anything I believe I've read or believed or talked to people about that. I don't know how to answer that question. I, I mean, I, I, everyone I've spoken to says the aircraft will be recertified. There is almost no question. It's just, it's, it's a safe airframe. And, you know, I've talked to num- a number of pilots who've said they'd put their families on it and fly it tomorrow. Um, so I think this is a matter of fixing some software and possibly, you know, some sensors. I, I don't know the details. I don't think anyone does yet, but, uh, I think. I'm fairly confident it'll be recertified. 
So I don't. I, okay. I can't answer your question. I just I don't know. I, okay. I haven't even thought of it. <laughs> well, we were just going through kind of, you know, what we when we look at these things, we're just trying to do some back of the envelope math, and because these there's a lot of these planes and they're very expensive. The dollar figures add up really quickly. So I guess yeah, maybe the hundred billion dollar negative scenario is not necessarily on the table, or at least you're pretty confident that uh, more of a, a resumption of normality is more likely, I guess. I am. I yeah. am. And, you know, you also have to remember you that there aren't that many maxes in service. I believe it's around 300. Mm. The largest max operator in the States is uh, Southwest with about a little more than 20. And that, you know, it's 5% of Southwest fleet. So yeah. right now the exposure isn't very great, but uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I can't imagine a scenario where it's not recertified, but there haven't been that many built, I guess is the point I'm trying to make. Got it. Okay. Interesting. I fly Southwest. So that's a one in 20, one in 20 for me. So yeah, one, a, just a couple of sort of bigger picture items. China's come up a fair amount in terms of as a potential, this is sort of on the industry scale. And mm -hmm. so you have, you know, Boeing in uh, the US, you have Airbus in Europe, and it really seems like it's these two major players duking it out. You have, I guess, Embraer and Bombardier, and also uh, China is trying to develop an entrant into the commercial aircraft manufacturing industry. So what's your assessment of the kind of global battlefield over this market? And, you know, China in particular, I think maybe because people are see China as a rising power in general, it's coming up in some of the commentary reports I'm reading. But what do you think about China's prospects for kind of cracking into the commercial aircraft manufacturing market? Well, China has made it an industrial priority to to develop its own aircraft, and has also, you know, spoken over the years with Russian manufacturers about developing a joint Russia-China aircraft. So it is it is coming. It's years and years away. I mean, you know, the um, the aircraft are still sort of on the drawing board. They there are some that have been. I believe are being operated by Chinese carriers, but they have not been certified globally. So they're years away. And then you also have to think there's a, there's a uh, sort of entrenched advantage for Boeing and Airbus. They, they, these are, these are enormous purchases, right? When you, when an airline purchases an aircraft, they're also buying, they have to invest in the maintenance of this aircraft or, and it's a, you know, it's a 20, it's an asset that has a 20 to 25 year life cycle. So, um, it's, it's similar to, you know, if you, if you've been a, you've been on iTunes since the early 2000s and you decide to buy an Android, are you willing to switch to an Android phone? Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's hard, it's hard to make that switch for these operators. But, um, but it, you know, I, I think we're, we're still many years away from a Chinese aircraft breaking into the, um, into the global airline market. Got it. Okay. That kind of connects with what we were, we just thought that the timescale was kind of mismatched here for 
these crashes to be the thing that would enable an opening for China to really make its play. It seemed, seemed like a longer um, sort of scale than that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, where, that, the, where there has been ahead. sort of uptake, um, Russia developed the Sukhoi Superjet. That's a small aircraft. It's smaller than a 737. And the only one Western operator, um, Interjet in Mexico, has, has bought these aircraft. And they've had trouble... Uh, they've kind of become sort of an albatross around inter- interjets neck and that they're not certified in a lot of countries. They're diff- so they therefore can't operate to those countries. And, um, they're, they're limited maintenance operators that can, can work on these aircraft. That that's, that's the sort of a cautionary tale. I mean, even if China were to come out tomorrow with an, with an aircraft that was certified worldwide, the infrastructure to support it doesn't exist yet. So we're, yeah, these crashes are not a catalyst for China, the development of China's or the acceleration of China's aircraft industry. Okay. Yeah, you're making the barriers to entry sound a lot higher than I think we appreciated. We were kind of working off this theory that there's so much capital sort of laying around in the in the world right now. It seems like you can start just a company that can take on just about any incumbent. I use the analogy of Tesla in the auto manufacturing industry that no one thought you could sort of disrupt the big automakers. And yet this company was able to raise money over and over again to try and do just that. But the way you're describing it, making an airplane and getting someone to buy it is sort of another proposition uh, altogether just in terms of the sort of degree of difficulty of, of getting the product out to market. So is that, is that fair? Or what do you think about just the difficulty of making and selling airplanes technologically? Oh, that's absolutely fair. I mean, you're, like we mentioned earlier, you know, there's a, a 10 year plus development cycle for these, these machines. They're, you know, they're, they're, enormous supply chains, like not just the engines, but the seats and the wiring and all these sort of uh, the sensors, et cetera, that, that are, that can't just be swapped from one aircraft to the, to another. There's the maintenance, the, the aftermarket care that, you know, that has, that has to go into, um, that has to follow an aircraft throughout its life cycle, which is 20 to 25 years. And, you know, even, even on a more sort of human factors level, Flight attendants and pilots are—they can't be just exchanged one to one. Like if you're if you're a flight attendant trained on a Boeing triple seven, you're not—you actually have to go through. You have to be trained again to to uh, to be a flight attendant on on an Airbus aircraft. So there there there, it's a it, the barriers to entry are huge for for um, producing an aircraft, and and you know you see it, you know Bombardier developed this what was then the C series found enormous and this is an established aircraft manufacturer with you know the sales and support infrastructure and you know a significantly large global fleet for its its other aircraft the uh, CRJ and the the um, f- for some of its other aircraft so when it tried to make a larger aircraft the company had to be bailed out by Quebec and now that program was bought by Airbus and you know it's a, it's a the Airbus 220. So I guess that's a very, very long-winded way. And I'm sorry to get all nerdy again, but 
but it's a very long-winded way to say you're exactly right. I mean, the barriers to entry are, are huge, and you just can't there even if there is a lot of capital sloshing around it you can't just start uh Medu's aircraft company tomorrow and, and produce an aircraft it, there's if the market just doesn't exist okay i'll i'll put my checkbook away then <laughs> uh great okay so i think yeah this is coming out kind of like this is a survivable issue for boeing i had a couple more questions just about the overall industry and the future of manufacturers, what are what are some of the big opportunities for aircraft and what are some of the big challenges that the industry faces? You know, I think of like emissions and global warming, for example, but I just, I think listeners would benefit for a sort of bigger picture perspective of where the industry is moving and what are some of the difficulties that are maybe laying ahead for it. Um, let's start with that, the point you brought up. Emissions, carbon emissions is a big, big issue for the airline industry. I mean, there is no fuel right now that exists right now. There's, it packs as much of a punch as jet fuel for aircraft. And if you think of the kind of the miracle that it, it, it is that you can you can you can rock up to an airport, buy buy a ticket, fifteen hours later be in Shanghai. That's that's a remarkable thing, and we kind of forget how in human history that is unusual <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, but to, to achieve that, I mean, the the there's no fuel that can replace jet fuel or kerosene right now that packs the same punch. By buying a ticket, you are contributing to climate change in a way by, you know, you are responsible for certain tonnage of carbon dioxide emissions emitted at, you know, a very high altitude. And that, and how the industry responds to that will be a challenge, you know, especially as governments around the world become stricter about carbon emissions. So that, you know, there, there are a number of things there's, there's, that they're looking into biofuel. The possibility of uh, alternate forms of energy, electricity, but uh, you know, with the technology we have today, these aren't as feasible to get you from where you are to Shanghai. The other, uh, the challenge, uh, related challenges. The flip side of it is, you know, the the, the price of oil is mm. always a concern for airlines. It's their biggest expense. So fuel is fuel. It flips back and forth between fuel and labor as the airlines based expense. And back in 2008, when oil spiked to $147 a barrel, I mean, that precipitated the consolidation we see, we saw in the airline industry in the U S um, you know, the mergers of Delta and Northwest continental United American and U S airways. They, oh, there so, was a reason for that. <laughs> I didn't realize that that was, that there was a sort of, proximate cause or pretext for all the consolidation because today I'm just, yeah. I'm just mad that it's hard for me to fly to Montana, you know, but <laughs> apparently. Yeah. I mean, uh, all those carriers were in bankruptcy uh -huh. <laughs> and, and one of the reasons they were in bankruptcy was, uh, was that uh, the market was fragmented and the price of oil went through, you know, became up unsustainably high. So that's always a concern for airlines. Geopolitics is always a concern for airlines. I mean, just recently yep. when, when, um, uh, Saudi Arabia and, um, and the United Arab Emirates blockaded 
the Qatari airspace. I mean, Qatar Airways had to add hours to some of its routes because it had to sort of fly around these, uh, the, couldn't fly through the airspace of Saudi Arabia and UAE. And that, that's just a, you know, one small example, but there's always geopolitical concerns for, for airlines, exogenous shocks as it is, as it were. So, um, you know, the, the industry faces a number of challenges and, uh, the next, the next few decades, should be interesting, but you know, you can't predict anything. Human, you know, commercial airlines are only a century old and it's been a very tumultuous century. So I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you what's going to happen, but, uh, there, there are definitely some challenges, you know, there, there's some perennial and consistent challenges to the industry, fuel emissions, geopolitics, labor, recessions, right. that, uh, you know, cause the airline industry to, uh, to contract and that ripple that affects of course the manufacturers like Boeing. Right. Okay. I, that's almost a really good spot to leave it. I did have one more question on kind of the, the, the state of the world today. One question that my colleague Daniel and I were wrestling with was this, like you mentioned recessions, this kind of cyclical nature of, uh, demand for air travel and that trickles back to the manufacturers. I'm curious your just general thoughts of the kind of environment as you look at air travel from the consumer perspective and from the airline perspective and from the manufacturer perspective. Boeing's recent difficulties are interrupting a really sort of strong run for the company. So I'm wondering what you think of where we're at today in terms of what's going well and what's maybe not going quite as well for air travel in general. Well, you know, globally we've been, we've since 2008, air travel has been, been growing by leaps and bounds um, as throughout the recovery. And just looking ahead, it's hard to say what, what will happen in the next couple of years. I mean, Boeing is at a very sort of a very high point right now. It has a 5,000, Airplane backlog. Airbus is similar. You couldn't buy an A320 now if you wanted until 2024 or something. Um, so they're very high points, but that could all change tomorrow if the, um, if people stop traveling and it's, it's, we see some cooling of demand in Asia and in, um, you know, the, the few years ago, the, the big story was the, the big Middle Eastern carriers, Emirates and Etihad and Qatar. And they've all been contracting. So it's, it's, it's really difficult to say. Like I said, I don't have the crystal ball, but Boeing and Airbus are in a good spot right now because they've, they have all these orders in the backlog. What will happen if all those orders are delivered? What will they enter a trough? It's hard to say. One thing to remember is that air, airlines do have to replace their aircraft and as the number of aircraft and service grows, the number of replacements also will grow, if that makes sense. Yes, it number. does. In fact, oh. yeah. Yeah, it sounds like an important, in fact, factor in the overall situation. Well, uh, Madhu, this has really been great. Thank you for uh, joining us. I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. Yeah. To get well, more Madhu, you should check out Gift Airline Weekly. I guess they're newly united together. Yeah. Thanks a lot. 
Thank you. It was my pleasure. And thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Idea. We hope you enjoyed this. We're thinking about doing one more episode on Boeing. If you do or don't want to hear more about the story, email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com. If you have a chance to review us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it. It helps other investors find this podcast. We're covering a finance battleground next week, so watch for that. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for listening, and see you next time on Behind the Idea.